the Holy Gospel according to John, chapter 4. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman. But no one said, what do you want or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to, to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Surely no one has brought him something to eat. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Do not you not say four months more than come as the harvest, but I tell you, look around, see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. 
The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor, others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans in that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Today's Gospel reading, even though it is officially the year of Matthew, is for the second week in a row from John, who will actually continue to guide us through our Lenten journey for two more weeks yet to come. And he does so each week, because this is John's M.O. He does so by not only telling us stories that are only found in John's Gospel, but also by telling us stories which are, well, really long because as it turns out lengthy extended narratives are also part of John's M.O. But like we've done several times in the last few weeks uh, we're going to jump into the gospel via the Old Testament reading this time that reading from the book of Exodus where in this week's reading God's chosen people the descendants of Father Abraham have been miraculously rescued uh, and delivered from bondage in Pharaoh's Egypt, and they now find themselves on the way to the promised land that God had promised to the descendants of Abraham. But the route to the land of promise is a route that now takes them through the rugged and arid terrain of the Sinai Peninsula, where they may camp in an area known as the wilderness of sin. The word sin is actually, in Hebrew, just the word for moon. And so it's not translated, it's just left in its Hebrew word. And so in Hebrew, uh, there's no connection to sinfulness in that sense, the way, obviously, in our English translation there is. But that said, their behavior here soon makes the connection anyway. As these people who have again and again miraculously been delivered and protected and led by God now start complaining to Moses about God and complaining too about Moses and what they regard as his just completely bungling leadership. The specific reason for their complaint is they can find no water anywhere near this place where Moses has told them to camp. Bonehead idea. In fairness to them all, by all human logic, they really are in a perilous situation. As some of us saw uh, on our trip to Ethiopia last year, uh, to be in rugged terrain, especially without water, even two or three miles away from fresh water is a perilous and can even become life-threatening situation. And the children of Israel, now encamped in the wilderness of sin, were many miles more than that away from any fresh water that they could see. 
And the attitude among them had now rapidly de-escalated to such a level of fearful hostility that Moses actually felt things were about to become mutinous and that his life was in danger because soon they would surely, in a not just thirsty but bloodthirsty mob mentality, pick up stones and stone him to death. And fearfully, he cries out to God asking for guidance and for help in the face of these grumbling and now seemingly dangerous ingrates whom God had saddled him with. God then instructed Moses to take his staff. He'd used it in the Nile at the time of the plagues, presumably used it too, if I recall, uh, at the Red Sea. God instructed now Moses with that staff to strike a rock, which God directed him to. And when he did, amazingly, miraculously, or I suppose uh, skeptics could argue, geologically, amazingly, serendipitously, fresh water gushed forth from the rock. And all, the people and their animals too, all were saved from this thirsty danger. They were delivered from evil again. A powerfully interesting thing to note. The people saw boulders and rocks in the wilderness of sin and were convinced they would soon die among them. Moses saw more rocks smaller ones, stones in the wilderness, and was convinced he would soon be put to death with them. And what does God now use as an instrument of deliverance and life for them? A rock. What they saw as threat became in the plans and purposes and mercy of God what God used to save them. This was not a one-time M.O. When it comes to the God of Moses in God's providential dealings with God's chosen people, just last week in that reading of the Gospel of John, Jesus reminded us of another time. That being the time when the people's incessant grumbling and lack of faith was followed by an epidemic of poisonous snakes which invaded and infected their encampment on that and Caucasian God instructed Moses to construct, do you remember, of all things, a bronze snake and to lift it up for all to see and all who in faith looked upon that serpentine image of death to see were delivered from that deadly threat. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus said to Nicodemus last week, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up. The lifting up that Jesus was, as far as Nicodemus was concerned, uh, confusingly and cryptically talking about was, of course, a reference to his being lifted up for all to see on a cross. The mother of all instruments of death from which the love of God would reach with life and love and salvation that no threat, not even death, nor either the threats we perceive and know and oftentimes even initiate in our own wildernesses of sin. None of it, the cross proclaims, as it is lifted up in the, in the wilderness of human sin, none of it can tear us from the eternal love of God in Christ our Lord. Note to self, 
when the God of Moses and Jesus is the one who has called you chosen and beloved, as that very same God did do in the waters of your baptism. When the wilderness, either around or within you, feels threatening, as sometimes it has, as now for many it kind of does, and as sometimes it surely will again, don't be afraid. Remember the greatness of your God, whose ways and means may at times be mysterious, whose plans for you may at times rout you through a rocky wilderness, but whose embrace of love for you and his promise of life. No threat has the power to take you from that. Which takes us to our gospel reading today where we meet a woman, a Samaritan woman who is thirsty. But she has no need uh, for Moses to come smash a rock for her. For just outside the Samaritan city in which she lives is a well which Abraham's grandson, Jacob, had dug back in the day when Samaria was still of uh, Israel. She comes to the well at noon, which is an important detail. People didn't go to draw water from the well at noon. It was the heat of the day for crying out loud. So they came earlier or later in the comparative cool of morning or evening, but not her. She comes in the heat of the day. Because why? Because she doesn't want to be there with others. She has in the past. She has heard their whispers and the whispers were about her, and they were not kind. But coming this day at noon to Jacob's well in what is now Samaria and not Israel or Judea, she discovers she's not alone. For a man is there. She does not know him. But she does know that he's a Jew. And this is an important detail. Jews, you see, did not travel to Samaria. For Samaria comprised Samaritans. And Samaritans were despised by Jews for what Jews regarded as their polluted mongrelness of their pedigrees and the polluted impurities of their faith and worship. They thought Samaritans were to be kept a distance from. Their impurities uh, were a virus that they didn't want to get too near them. But here now is this Samaria, is this Jew, who we know is named Jesus. The importance of the detail, Jesus, the Messiah, as he said, promised to and from the Jews, did not come only to be for the Jews. He came for all, including those on the other sides of the divisions and walls that we in our wildernesses of sin build still between us and God and between us and others. Jesus speaks to her something else a Jew and even more so a Jewish man would never do. But he nevertheless does because of course his M.O. as she would soon discover was grace. And grace is ever doing what others would never do, including especially what others who are religious would never 
do. She questions him about that. He replies that if she knew to whom she was speaking, she would ask him for water and she'd never be thirsty again. Her reply, I think, is actually a little bit cheeky. Paraphrased, as if, she says, and I like her already. Jesus, of course, it turns out, loves her already. The water you give me, he said, is for life for a day, but the water I give you is for life for forever. She doesn't understand. In fact, she misunderstands, but she wants in. Give me this water of yours, she said, so I can quit coming to this well and either in the heat of the day or in the gossip circles of others. He says, go get your husband and come back. She pauses just a beat then, I imagine, anyway, because there is, there's vulnerability in this moment. She replies, I don't have a husband. He replies, that's true. For in fact, you've had five husbands, and now you're living with a man who isn't your husband. She does not know how he knows. She suspects he is a prophet standing in front of her. She acknowledges that what he says is true. But she can't not notice that he speaks the truth without judgment. She's used to being judged by her neighbors who whisper about her, and by Bible readers ever since, who've often made the absolutely unfounded and judgmental assumption that she has unfaithfully, and I'll bet adulterously, left five men now to be living in sin with a sixth. This is exactly not true. In that time and place, a woman did not have any legal right to initiate a divorce. A divorce could only happen when initiated by a man who could do so for virtually any reason, including underboiling the bagels. But the most common reason was a woman's inability to have children. This, in other words, and to be clear, is not a woman who has five times filed for divorce. This is a woman who five times scorned has been filed upon. Her neighbors, of course, knew this, which is why the judgmental whispers they whispered had a different content than the ill-informed judgments we make. For the whispers they whispered, the reasons she avoided them, were whispers likely like this. There she is. Bless her heart. She can't please any man. And now she is living with a sixth man, perhaps for love but more likely for survival. For in those days of virtually no legal rights for women, a woman without a man and without children and without a government safety net was life-threateningly vulnerable. But as the scene has now proceeded, she has shifted from her initial and endearing cheekiness to vulnerability in the presence of Jesus. Gradually, in conversation with him, she lets her walls down, then to discover that in the presence of Jesus, hers were the only walls that had ever been there. 
And she begins to realize, she doesn't have a word for it yet, but it's beginning to seep through and to soften even the, the crusty, self-protecting walls which, having been wounded so often, she had put up to guard her heart. As she begins now to realize, even not yet quite being able to name it, that the living water he is alive with is the water of now and forever grace. And that grace is the grace of the God, of Jews and Samaritans and all people and her. At which point the disciples arrive from a shopping run and they, just like her, are surprised, actually astonished, that he's talking to her. It is not, of course, the first time he has surprised them, nor will it be the last. But eventually they will come to realize and to share with all that in this world of sin and the walls sin continues to build, in Christ comes grace, which is ever surprising to the world. And in its surprise is found life, life that is different now, life that is under, unto forever, and life that has in it its arms the power to quench the thirst, even of thirsty souls. At which point the Samaritan woman goes back to town. She forgot about her physical thirst. She left her jar there. She goes back to town, not to avoid, but to find her neighbors and to reach out to them as, I believe, the very first ever Christian evangelist. The first person ever to go out of her way by her own initiative to tell others about Jesus and how he had changed her life. She wasn't preachy or overbearing about it, not cheeky either. She just shared her Jesus story with her neighbors, and then she invited them to meet him too. Come and see this man who told me everything I've ever done. He can't be the Messiah, can he? She said. Note to her and us. Yes. Yes, he can. Stay tuned, more grace to come. In the meantime, do you know anybody who's thirsty? Maybe your Jesus story would be the chalice from which they could sip a sip of the best drink ever. It's a drink named Jesus and his love. Amen.